So during the worship, I felt the Lord give me a word, so I'm changing my plans, which is good news for those of you who are in the four o'clock service, because you don't have to listen to the same preach twice. Those of you who wanted the same preach twice, you can download it when it's online and, and listen to it. But I think this thing of humility is so important, uh, particularly at a time like this where uh, we're facing a new year, some of you facing new environment, maybe you're launching out on your own for the first time, maybe you're moving congregations, uh, things are changing. And it can be scary and unsettling, and uh, we need to have a security in ourselves that, in a sense, we are not able on our own to cope with the challenges that life brings. None of us in ourselves are capable of carrying the significance that we all deep down hope and desire to have. I think there's something in, in every person deep down there's a desire to be significant. There's a desire to be useful. There's a desire to put, the stamp, put your stamp on the world in some way. And for us to do that in a godly, effective way, it's got to come out of a place of humility. The one thing I did say earlier is, I, I love that psalm in Psalm 8, where, where David, he says, when I consider the heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and stars that you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you should care for him. And he just sees the vastness of the universe that was created by God with the word. And he sees the vastness and the power of God. And he says, who am I that you should even know that I exist? And that's a good place to start. But if we do that the right way and in God, it doesn't leave us feeling insignificant. It doesn't feel lead, lead us or leave us feeling lost and alone. But it leads us to that place where we realize that the God of creation knows me by name. And that gives me significance. Have we got any psychology students here? Anybody saying, oh, I'm in trouble. If I make mistakes, just throw something at me. <clears throat> but according to psychologists... And this, this is going to sound like an old boomer saying things. But um, <clears throat> young people living today are, by any objective measure, the most narcissistic generation in history. Not, not me condemning as a generation. And it's no surprise. It's no surprise when we live in a selfie generation. It was interesting, I took my family on a tour of Europe um, three or four years ago. It must be longer, pre-COVID. And um, I had the privilege of going to Paris and to Rome. And I remember we went to visit the Colosseum and we decided to stay while the sun set because as the sun set, the sky changes colors and just the whole thing, it just looks beautiful as the sun sets. So we were there for about an hour and over that hour, I remember watching at least one young girl. She would arrive, put makeup on, like high heels. She'd get to the Colosseum, stand with the back to the Colosseum, and then disappear. And the objective wasn't to see the beauty of what was in front of her. The objective was to get a picture of herself in a significant place. And it's not all her fault, it's appearance and society and social media which treats likes like hits of dopamine and you know it's like, it's, it's literally like a drug and it's designed that way deliberately to be addictive and to keep us hooked on people liking us. Often people we don't know or don't care about and people are living lives for the approval of people they don't know or don't like. And the problem is, whilst, whilst it's the most narcissistic um, generation by objective measures, um, <clears throat> there's also a deep and profound sense in many people 
of a lack of self-esteem. And it's almost contradictory. It is contradictory, but it's, just, it's, like I need, it's like I need the drug of constant approval. And there's two aspects to self-esteem. Just a quick psychology lesson for you here. So healthy self-esteem, and, and we need to esteem ourselves correctly and rightly, okay? But there's two aspects to healthy self-esteem. One is self-worth, the knowledge that you are loved and accepted. And many people don't have that because the love and acceptance that they've always experienced has been conditional or fallible or manifested in, in, in strange, perverted or ungodly or distorted ways. That's why many young women give themselves to young men sexually because it's a, a sense of I'm feeling loved, but it's not love. Okay? So there's a need to feel loved and appreciated and of value just in who you are. And so it, it is who you are, not what you do that's important, that kind of message. And there's truth in that. But there's another side to, to self-esteem, which is self-efficacy. And self-efficacy is this, essentially, in layman's terms. That I am capable of doing that which I've been created to do. I am capable of doing something significant. And so you can feel loved, but if you don't feel capable of doing anything significant, then you won't have healthy self-esteem. And the problem is in our participation Everybody gets a trophy society, you know, where you know everybody get, gets told they're amazing no matter what they do. The attempt is to make everybody have a sense of self-efficacy, but you can't fool people. Deep down, if I get a trophy for coming in 15th out of 15, <laughs> that trophy actually doesn't make me feel any better. It might make me feel entitled when I don't get what I want, but it actually doesn't give me a secure foundation. And true humility, which we find when we come into the presence of God, we see his vastness and his power, and we see our insignificance and our sin and our inabilities and our weaknesses and everything. And then he takes us and he accepts us and he loves us and he begins that journey of transformation and where he says, I want to put my spirit in you and use you for something significant. That's then when we have true godly self-esteem. Where I don't throw myself at the mercy of others. Where I don't, um, I don't compromise who I am in order to be accepted by a group of idiots which is what people do all the time. You know, when I was younger and I did something stupid, my mother would always use this line. I'm sure you've heard it. If all your friends jumped off a bridge, would you jump off too? Who heard that line? You know what the answer is? The real answer is probably I would have, yeah. Because <laughs> peer pressure is that strong. Unless, unless we're rooted and grounded in something so much more powerful. And the wonderful truth is, God does love you. And God values you. And God wants to partner with you to do something significant. And he wants to put his Holy Spirit in you to empower you to be like him. And to do the things that he did. I can't think of anything more worthwhile than serving Jesus. I would rather serve Jesus than be an international rugby player because you may win a World Cup trophy, but at the end of the day, that's going to melt and be burned up like anything else. But when you work for Jesus, what you're doing has eternal significance, eternal consequence. And that is a great place for you to feel, I am valuable.
And you're valuable not because you are somehow, you know, special in and of yourself. In and of yourself, you're not all that. But when you're a carrier of the Spirit of God, that makes you incredibly significant. It's like a pizza box. The pizza box isn't that special. But what's inside it, people want. (laughs) And when your pizza box has got a really good pizza in it, then it has worth, it has value, it has purpose. And what we're carrying is something way more valuable than pizza. And one person who understood that was David. And David was a young man, even before he comes to fame, even before he fights Goliath, as we read uh, the account of his life, we know that he would be out tending sheep. And as he was tending sheep, he would be worshipping God, spending time in the presence of God. He would be being faithful to doing the things that his father had asked him to do. And one of the key things in the kingdom for being useful and being significant is faithfulness. Because often we think, what I'm doing isn't that significant. It's too small. In the whole scheme of things, it doesn't amount to much. But if you're faithful in those little things, God will entrust you with more. I've, I've I've spoken to many guys and they said, my... When will I get a chance to preach? When will I, when will I be in the ministry? When, I, when will I be an elder? And, and they want to be significant. And yet they're not willing, for example, to serve in kids' church. So if you're not willing to serve there, how can God entrust you with more? Or with your work? Or with your study? If you can't be faithful studying for degree, why would God trust you with people's souls? We need to be faithful with the small in order to be trusted with the big. And this is David. We know that he was faithful because when he's talking to Goliath, and Goliath's going, ah, you know, I'm going to... And when he's talking to to Saul and he's he's explaining why he thinks he can be victorious, he says, when I was looking after my father's sheep and a lion or a bear came, I killed the lion and the bear. And when I was a little kid, you know, with the comic book Bibles and stuff, I used to picture him with his sling killing the lion and the bear. That's not what happened. He says, I would take the lion by the hair and kill it. This is a young man who would do hand-to-hand combat with a lion to save his father's sheep. I would say that's going over and above. (laughs) I, 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 I think that's going beyond the expected. I think that's faithfulness. And also... I believe he worshipped while he was out in the hills. At night when he was sleeping with the sheep, when he was sleeping in the hills, surrounded by the sheep. (laughs) I believe he would worship. And I think Psalm 23 probably came out of that time. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me. I've got this theory. I'm going to ask him one day. Because he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear not evil. And then it comes time one day to fight Goliath. And we're told that the Philistines were on one hill, the Israelites were on the other hill. So in order to fight Goliath, where did he have to go? He had to walk into the valley of death. And I like to think that as he was on his way to fight Goliath, he started to sing to himself. He started to worship. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no uncircumcised Philistine, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. And those moments of worship while he was alone set him up for victory when he was in public. If we want to be useful If we want to be significant, we've got to learn these lessons. We've got to prepare well before the moment of significance arrives. I remember the story of a young man, and uh, 
he was an elder in a church, but nobody ever asked him to preach. And every Sunday he would prepare and he would practice and he would get his notes and he'd look in the mirror and he'd preach into the mirror. And every Sunday he would get ready and nobody ever asked him to preach. Three, four, five years. Not once did he preach, but every Sunday he prepared and he prepared and he prepared. And then one Sunday he got a call and the guy who was leading that church was leaving to plant a church in another nation. And they said, we're feeling in the Lord that maybe you're the one to take over and lead this church. But we don't know if you're ready. Are you ready? He said, I've been ready for four years. If you want to be significant, be prepared. I was a Boy Scout. Be prepared. That was our motto. <laughs> But all the preparation, all the effort, all the willingness, all the natural charisma that you might have, all, all the skills that you may have, are nothing without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And the scary thing is, as I've realized, because I've been doing this a long, long time, longer than many of you have been alive, we can become so good and so skilled at what we do we can do it without the Holy Spirit and many people won't notice the difference. But God notices the difference and eternity will notice the difference. And I want to share something about the anointing that hopefully will just change something in us tonight. And, I, and then I want to pray for us because I believe that God wants to anoint many people here with something new for a new season, a new year, new gifts, new strength. You know, when the Holy Spirit came in the New Testament, um, some theologians argue that wherever somebody was baptized in the Spirit, they spoke in tongues, and other theologians argue, no, it, it, you can argue that. But one thing I don't think you can argue, as I've read it and as I've looked at it, Wherever people are filled with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, they get a greater boldness and courage to do that which God wants them to do. Peter, who denied Christ three times, preaches to thousands. The disciples who scattered are willing to endure imprisonment and being beaten in order to preach the gospel. They do miracles, they do great signs and wonders. Because the Holy Spirit is just working through them and active through them. And I believe God needs a, a generation of people, not just here in Stellenbosch, but around the world, who aren't just doing their Christian duty and going through the motions and doing the right things, but that we're spirit-empowered. You know, I, I, I like apologetics. And I watch apologetics videos. But one of the things I hate about apologetics videos is, is these debates where Christians thinking they can out-debate an atheist. That's like shining a light to a blind man and being convinced he'll see the light. Nobody will get saved except by the Spirit of God. Praying for the sick. It doesn't matter how skilled my prayer is. I'm not a good enough, good enough doctor. You know, my prayers are not going to see somebody healed just by the skill of my prayer, but the power of the Holy Spirit. We need that anointing. What is anointing? What's it about? And, I, and I'm not going to give you the whole answer, but something from the life of David that I want to share with us that I think would be key, key to our understanding and help us as we move forward. If there is a willingness to be sold out and to be used by God. In 1 Samuel 16, Samuel is told to go and find the new king of Israel. It says in verse 4, so Samuel did what the Lord said and he went to Bethlehem. And I just want to pick a few things out here and these are not laws or rules. One thing I've noticed in all my years of serving God, there are certain principles that we can follow, but God cheats sometimes. Have you noticed that? God cheats. It's like, 
there's a certain principle he works by and then suddenly he does it differently. Like um, David. David committed adultery and murder. He should have been put to death, right? And God says, no, you can carry on being king. Wait a minute, God, that's not fair. You know, another king, he just, he's told to bang arrows on the ground, so he bangs them, and, and, and God says, you didn't bang the, the arrows often enough. So I'm, I'm going to, what? Wait a minute, banging arrows versus like, adultery and murder. Like, God, come on, now, how does this work? So there are principles, but they're not laws, they're not rules. That's why we call him Jehovah Sneaky. You see, and the reason is this, because it's relationship. It's not a law book or a rule book we're following, it's a person. And when there's a person, the relationship is what counts, not the rule. My daughter did something really, really bad a little while ago, like really bad. She should have been like grounded for the rest of her life. (laughs) You know what I did? took her out for dinner because she knew she should be punished what she needed in that moment was to know that her dad still loved her even though what she'd done was wrong and in that moment I kind of broke the rules a little bit for the sake of relationship and we've got to come to the Lord Jesus in relationship not with rules and systems and regulations. And we see, you know, we see one guy, we see Andre, he does certain things and then, you know, he gets profile and he gets noticed and he gets made an elder and then he's, you know, got this big, and we go, well, if I just do what he did, then I'll get this, and then you not get noticed. You go, why am I not being noticed? Because I've got a different plan for you. I often say this about my two girls. I've got two girls, they're very different. I do not treat them identically. I treat them equally. In other words, I try and give each one what she needs to come into the fullness of what God wants her to be. I don't give her what her sisters had just so she can say that's fair. When they were very young, something happened and my daughter said, that's not fair. I said, let me show you something. I drove them through Danoon, one of the worst, not through, like past Danoon, not through Danoon. <laughs> One of the poorest, most crime-ridden areas in South Africa, in the world. I said, we could have lived there. You better thank God life isn't fair. You have been so blessed. Next time you say life isn't fair, just be careful. And sometimes God isn't fair. He's just. So these are some Concepts and principles, not rules. And the first one is this. The anointing happened in Bethlehem. And the the name Bethlehem means house of bread. It's the house of bread and it's the birthplace of Jesus. If you want more of the anointing, if you want more of the Holy Spirit, a good place to find yourself is in the house of bread. It's where the word of God is. It's trying to hear what God is saying to you. And it's where Jesus is. You know, often people say to me, I just feel like I've lost God. I've used this line before. I said, God's like your car keys. Where did you last have him? Go back there. (laughs) Find God and find his word. And sometimes, I'll be honest, I love the Bible, I love the word of God. But sometimes my quiet times, it feels like God's speaking Chinese. Anybody been there? And you think, what a waste of time that was. I didn't hear anything, but it wasn't a waste of time because you've been building relationship. I've been married 26 years. I still don't understand what my wife's saying half the time. (laughs) If men could understand women, the world would be a different place. Sometimes I don't have to, we don't even have to speak Just being together is what builds relationship. And sometimes you'll spend time and it's investing in the relationship till that day when he will speak. And when he speaks, listen. Somebody once said, if you want a woman to listen, whisper. (laughs) 
That's a bit naughty, eh? Going to be in trouble for that one. But Samuel comes and he finds David in Bethlehem in the house of bread. I want to encourage you to be a generation of people found in the presence of Jesus, listening to his word. Whether that's reading the Bible, listening to prophetic, but listening to what he's saying to you. And he came, and he finds Jesse, and he says, sanctify yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons, and invited them to the sac- sacrifice. <coughs> Sanctification is something that's not often preached today. It's almost a dirty word in the church. Because grace, grace, we're already holy, we're already perfect. No, scripture says, he is making holy forever those that have been made holy. And sanctification is a process. And it's a process of becoming, in reality, what he's already called you to be legally. So legally, he's declared you perfect and righteous. How many of you here are perfect and righteous? Well, you are, but I'm looking around and it it kind of, it's a bit hard to believe. How many of you know that the way you live live isn't always aligned to that declaration? And it's not trying to earn the anointing. If I'm good enough, I'll get the anointing. If If I obey enough rules, God will be pleased with me. God already has a relationship with you, but you're a dirty vessel. And you need cleaning. And a good picture of this is in the New Testament where Jesus is is, um, washing his disciples' feet. And Peter says, no, I must wash your feet, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, unless I wash you, you can have no part of me. Now, suddenly we know that Jesus isn't talking about soap and water, right? And Peter says, well, in that case, Lord, wash all of me. And Jesus says, no, those who've had a bath are clean, but your feet are dirty. In other words, you're a clean person, but there's a part of you that's been in contact with the world, that's been uh, polluted by the world that I need to clean. And we need to be a people who allow the Lord to come and clean those parts of us that he reveals are dirty. And that takes courage. Because none of us like to look at our imperfections. We like to cover over. We like to do an Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned and they were aware of their sin, they were aware of their nakedness, what did they do? They made clothes for themselves. In other words, they tried to use their own skill, their own efforts to cover up their nakedness. And God said, no, that's not going to do. And I'm so glad he did because if we were all wearing fig, fig leaf clothes, especially when the southeaster blows, it would not have been a good idea. And God instead says, no, I have to clothe you. And that is the first incidence of of blood being shed and an animal killed because it's a picture of Jesus when he says, only the blood of Jesus can truly clothe you of your nakedness. Not your own skill, not your own ability, not your own... And too often we try and clothe ourselves and hide our nakedness. When actually what we've got to come do is come before him. We've got to come before him and say, here I am, naked and unashamed that you might come and clothe me. And that's the beauty, because of the cross, we don't have to be ashamed in his presence. We don't have to be proud of our sin, but we don't have to be ashamed, because we know that he can remove it and wash us clean. And there's got to be that willingness to be vulnerable and naked, metaphorically speaking, before him. I'm not talking like literally naked. I don't want everybody throwing the clothes off in church. But you know what I'm talking about? That, that nakedness before him, that vulnerability, that I'm coming not trying to hide anything, which is pretty kind of stupid thing to do anyway, trying to hide stuff from God. Like when God said, Adam, where are you? He wasn't asking that because he didn't know the answer.
And so we've got to love and appreciate the process of sanctification, even though it can be painful sometimes. We used to, we used to joke, I've not heard this line for a, for a, for a long time, but we used to say, uh, the truth hurts, then it sets you free. <laughs> you know, Jesus said, you shall know the truth, the truth shall set you free. It does, but sometimes the truth hurts first. How many of you like hearing something bad about yourself? How many of you get really excited when somebody says, um, Henrik, can I just speak into your life about something? How many of you, your hearts leap with joy? How many of you have ever had a call from an elder, can we do coffee? And suddenly you start getting sweating. What have I done wrong? That should never be the, the response. And if elders are only ever calling you for coffee when you've done something wrong, then the elders have a problem. But it's difficult and it's hard sometimes, but it's beautiful. And we get washed clean when we're willing to come before him vulnerable and naked. And so they come and the first son comes out, you know, and it's like a Mr. Universe contest. He's big and he's strong and he's good looking. And God says, nope, nope, nope. And seven sons come and God rejects all seven. He says, I'm not looking at the outward. I'm looking at the inward. I'm looking for a heart that is turned to me. Scripture says, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro across the earth, looking for a heart that's devoted to him. God chooses men. He chose Abraham. He chose David. He chose um, a Jeremiah. He chose an Isaiah. He chose a Paul. And today his eyes are still roaming back and forth because he, he wants to choose men and women that he can raise up to have a serious impact on our families and our, our colleges and our, and our towns. Um, he's not looking for the most gifted people. He's not looking for the most beautiful people. If he was, I wouldn't be up here. He's looking for people whose hearts are turned towards him and people who are willing. Willingness is a characteristic that you don't often hear preached on, but I think it's one of the greatest characteristics of a servant of Jesus. Willingness. Who will go? Here I am, Lord, send me. We need somebody to relocate. We need... Stellenbosch PM, it's growing, it's exploding, but mostly with young people and students, we need some families. Is anybody willing to go? We don't know if they'll like us, but we'll give it a try. We'll relocate our house, we'll relocate everything, because Lord, we, we're willing for you. It's an incredible attribute. God, as it's often said, doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. Are you listening? Are you willing to respond to the call of God? Whatever that may be. And David isn't there. And Samuel says to Jesse, he says, um, I'm confused because I'm a prophet and I usually get my prophecies right. And God said the guy would be here but it's none of these seven. Do you have any other sons by any chance? Strange question asking. I think Jesse was like, ah, there's one more <laughs> who wasn't invited. Think about it. The greatest prophet in the kingdom came to your house and you weren't invited. Who's miffed? Come on, how many of you miffed? You know, one of the things that will kill the work of the Spirit and the anointing in your life quicker than most things is offense. In comparison. Why didn't I get what he got? Why don't, what about me? What about, what about you? It's not about you. 
Somebody once joked, they said, we don't tell lies in church, we sing lies in church. You know, if we, if we, if we were really honest, we'd, we'd be singing, it's all about me, Jesus, and all this is for me. And many churches build on that. This is for your blessing, your, your, your life, your best life. God wants you to be happy. I think Abraham, I, I actually heard Jordan Peterson say this. He said, Abraham was pretty happy in his dad's home, people peeling grapes for him, everything. And God called him out. And where he called him out to was war, conflict, famine. He said, God wasn't concerned with his happiness. God was concerned with giving him a purpose which was greater than himself, which would require conflict. It would require overcoming. It would require self-sacrifice. It would require living for something bigger than his own happiness. And in that, Abraham found true happiness. Does that make sense? And David's out. What's he doing? He's looking after the sheep. He's being faithful. He is being faithful. And it doesn't look very spiritual. But it's incredibly spiritual. I think I told the story here one time. I, I was asked to preach in Sunningdale a few years ago. And when I get, got there, I decided to go to the bathroom. I often try and get to the bathroom before I preach because if you need the bathroom mid-preach, it can get quite awkward. <clears throat> so I went into the bathrooms and one of the stalls, I don't know how to say this without being a little bit graphic, it looked like something had exploded in the stall and then somebody decided to, to do graffiti all over the stall in somebody else's poop. I mean, it was, it was just everywhere. It was, I mean, it was the worst mess you've ever seen in your life. I, I cannot imagine how it even happened. <laughs> like, even if somebody had tried to deliberately do it, it I mean, and it, it was disgusting and it stank. And I'm thinking, what do I do? Because this needs to be cleaned up as a matter of urgency. And I could do it, but I'm preaching and it's not really the best preparation for preaching, but, you know, and, and just because I'm an elder, this isn't below me, you know, whoever would be first would, should be last, and I'm just trying to figure out how do I go about sorting this out, and a guy came in with a mop and a bucket, and he started to clean it up. I said, oh, thank you so much. I said, sorry, I don't think we've met, because, you know, I get around to all the different congregations. I said to him, um, what's your name? And he told me his name. I said, oh, how long have you been in Josh Jenny? He said, no, I'm a visitor. And I just thought, man, this guy's got something. This guy understands the nature of Jesus. And when I was preaching, I said, you know what, guys? Many of you think what I'm doing is the most important thing tonight. But I want to tell you about this guy. That what he did for not, with no recognition, nobody seeing him, nobody thanking him, nobody coming up to him afterwards and tell him, telling him he's awesome. You are allowed to do that, by the way. <laughs> Said, and here's the thing. If there are visitors here tonight and my preaching stinks, maybe they'll come back another time and give it another shot. But if there are visitors and they visited those bathrooms, they would never come back again. What that guy did was of huge eternal significance. And there's a guy, which was more spiritual, my preaching or him cleaning a cubicle? I think what he did was just as spiritual and just as much, in some ways, a greater offering to Jesus, a fragrant offering. <laughs> <laughs> You understand what I'm saying? How many of us would rush to the pulpit? How many, of us would, how many of us would rush for a mop and bucket? And I think those that would rush for the mop and bucket are the ones that God wants to pour his spirit on. You know, in, in um, John 3, uh, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. 
And Nicodemus is clueless. And Jesus begins to talk about the Holy Spirit. He says, the wind blows wherever it will. And there's a sense, well, okay, well, then it's just random. No, wind is not random. Man cannot control the wind. I cannot wake up tomorrow morning and decide which way the wind blows. But you know what? If I'm wise, I can have a pretty good guess which way the wind blows. Why? Because wind is simply air moving from an area of high pressure to an area of low pressure. Am I right? Any, anybody studying weather? See, that's the problem with preaching in a university town. Whatever you talk about, you've got experts ready to correct you. But that's pretty much right, yeah? Wind is not. (laughs) But you can predict by looking at the pressure which way the wind's going to blow. Do you want to be in a high place or a low place? If you want the spirit to blow on you, be in a low place. You can't force it. You can't compel it. I've got lots of friends who kite surf and do all kinds of things. They cannot control the wind, but they can harness the wind. They can set themselves up and position themselves for the wind to blow on them. The Holy Spirit is not my servant. I'm the servant of Jesus, but I can position myself where my master wants to be. And David was being faithful and obedient, and humble. And God chose him. And this interesting thing is, he was the eighth son. And you know numbers are symbolic in scripture, often. So the number two can speak of testimony or witness. Uh, The number three speaks often of trinity. Number four, creation. That's why we have the four winds, the four corners, the four living creatures, the four points of the compass. Five often speaks of grace. Six speaks of man. Man was created on the sixth day. Seven often speaks of God. And eight, anybody? Eight. Rebirth, resurrection, and new beginnings. David was the eighth son. And the number eight speaks of rebirth. We have to be born again. I know that seems like I'm being Captain Obvious right now. (laughs) But by being born again, I love the term. It's, It's speaking of I had a life, now I've got a new life. This Christian adventure is not a Uh, self-improvement course. It isn't where God makes good men better. It's where he makes dead men alive. We can't come to Jesus and say, here I am, improve my life. We've got to come and say, I lose my life, that I may be born again, that I might have a new life, a new perspective, a new way of doing things. It's like the guy who went into a library. He said, can you tell me where the, uh, the self-help books are? And the librarian said, I could tell you, but that would kind of defeat the purpose, wouldn't it? <laughs> Some of you will get it tomorrow. <laughs> so David represents one who's born again. And even his name. His name. Anybody here called David? Any Davids here? What do your name mean? What does your name mean? Beloved. He's the beloved one of God. Are you you loved by God? And theologically, you'll also, yes, Jesus loves me, this I know. But if I ask you, if I look into your eyes, can you really look me in the eyes and with conviction say, I am loved by God. If God had a fridge, my photograph would be on it. (laughs) If God had a wallet, my photograph would be in it. If God had a cell phone, I would be on speed dial. Can you look at me and tell me that? 
That's one of the greatest tragedies of the church today is there are too many people, too many Christians who do not know in the very depths of their being that they are loved by God without performance, without condition. And yes, we can argue some of God's love is conditioned, but he loves you. He's crazy about you. He's wild about you. And he wants to be intimate with you. And even that word scares you. Intimacy. Who gets uncomfortable with the word intimacy? You're going to be really uncomfortable with what I'm saying next. So David comes, the beloved of God, the one who's born again, and he comes before Samuel, and God says, this is the one. And it says in verse 12 that he had bright eyes. That means he was a wise man. That, you know, the eyes are the window of the, the soul. It doesn't mean just like he had, he had. It's not just saying he was a good-looking guy. Like you could look at him and see integrity and wisdom in him. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. This is a beautiful picture. So David comes, I'm sure he knelt. And Samuel takes this horn of oil. And oil, I'm sure most of us know, is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So being anointed is being covered with the oil. Today, when I talk about anointing, it's the Holy Spirit coming and, and just covering you, overwhelming you. Some people talk about a baptism of the Spirit even. And baptism speaks of being, being flooded, being overwhelmed, the Holy Spirit coming upon you. And the horn is a symbol of strength. And so the strength, the power of the Holy Spirit comes, up, comes upon him. And here's the weird one. And some of you are going to get uncomfortable because we're in church. But when I was studying this some time ago, God said, check out the word for oil because it's significant. So I went through my books, oil, and I looked it up. I went, hmm, that's odd. Are you sh and God said, no, it's significant. Go, Why is it significant? And I had a bit of a debate because the word for oil is, 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 a, is a, a Hebrew word, but it's the root of that word is where we get the word semen from. And, there's, and, and I'm saying, God, that, that's a bit weird. Certainly can't use that word in a preach. We're not allowed to use certain words in preaches, right? And God said, no, think about it. What is happening here? And I realized, actually, what's happening here, and we talked about intimacy, being beloved. We talked about coming naked, being vulnerable. And there's a sense that spiritually, as David comes forward in intimacy with the God, with God, open, abandoned, transparent, naked, if you will, then the Lord comes by his spirit and puts a seed within him. And he puts something and he impregnates David with life, with something that hadn't been there before. And where there was nothing, now there is something. We see that in Genesis 1, the Holy Spirit over, hovered over the waters and an earth that was formless and void is full of life. We see it in the New Testament with Mary. Mary receives this word that she will uh, give birth to the Savior. And the Holy Spirit comes and overshadows her. And where there was nothing in her womb, then there was life in her womb. And what God wants to do by his Holy Spirit, he wants to come in those moments of intimacy to you. And he wants to come and deposit things, deposit life, deposit gifts, deposit something within you that wasn't there previously. And that's what happens to David. And from that moment on, he says, David was anointed to be king. But he didn't stand up and start ruling. Why? Because what's happened at this moment is the impregnation. David, if you like, becomes pregnant with something. 
And now he has a responsibility. He has a responsibility to nurture that. And he goes through a whole process of maturing, of bringing this thing to life, the tests of God that he has to overcome. And if he tried in his own strength to make the, to give birth to this thing, to become king, not in God's timing, then that which was born may not have lived or would have been weak or had problems. Yeah? The child must come to term. And only in God's timing did David give birth and become king. He had opportunities. Remember, he had Saul in the cave. And he could have, he could have killed Saul. And he said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to make this thing happen outside of God's timing. What I will do is nurture it in faith. And when God comes by his anointing and deposits things within us, sometimes I've seen people that get this anointing and immediately give birth to something new. Others, it takes time. And something is, 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 is deposited which needs to be grown and nurtured. I've seen young men who've got an apostolic anointing and they get a prophetic word and they go, I'm going to go off now and be an apostle. And if they did that, they would crash and burn. Instead, what they need to do is continue to be faithful sons in the house until God releases them. And then when it's released at the right time, it's a beautiful newborn thing. But can you see, there's a beautiful picture there of in, when we are intimate with God and he impregnates us, it creates life. I could be more specific and draw diagrams, but I think you all know what I'm getting at. In Daniel, it says, those who know their God will do great exploits. There's different kinds of knowledge that we read about in Scripture. Kind of logic, um, stuff like that. The word there is yada. And yada speaks of an experiential knowledge of knowing it's the same word used for Adam and Eve when it says Adam knew Eve and she gave birth to a son it's like I don't just have an understanding of God I have an experiential relationship with him I know him because I'm in relationship those who are intimate with God those who have a relationship with God those who are intimate with God and allow his spirit to be poured forth they will do great exploits because they will be impregnated with something of the Spirit of God. Does that make sense to you? So David stood up and he went off and he continued to be that same man of faithfulness, humility, faith and courage. And he served the previous king. He served Saul for many years until God gave him what had been birthed in that moment. I think God wants to birth many things in us. Because as I look around, I see a lot of faithfulness. A lot of people who want to do the right thing. A lot of people who want to serve God. A lot of people who want to share the gospel. You want to be good stewards. You want to be good stewards of your time. You want to be good stewards of the gospel. You want to be good stewards of your gifts. But there's got to be a dimension more than just our own ability, skills, willingness. There's got to be the supernatural dimension of the Holy Spirit empowering us to do that which is impossible to do ourselves. God I believe, desires within this congregation to break open the prophetic more than it is now. Evangelism more than it is now. Faith, healings, signs and wonders, deliverance. You know, one of the things I see sometimes is we do so much counseling and counseling is important and loving people and teaching people and, and leading people in ways of righteousness. But often I see one moment of prayer and deliverance can do more than 20 years of counseling. 
And I said this once in a congregation, people got upset with me. I said, I'm really concerned that I haven't seen any deliverance here. I said, because I know that the demons are here. And if they're not manifesting, it's just because they're comfortable. We need to see demons uncomfortable in our presence. I see that in the New Testament. When Paul would walk into a place and the demons would like, ah, that's Paul. <laughs> when we say, has anybody got any testimonies? You know, and I don't want to denigrate any testimony. Say, oh yeah, you know, I prayed for Auntie Mary and a headache got better. You know, that's wonderful. But where's the powerful testimonies of God's undeniable healing power? And it's real. I personally have seen people healed of AIDS and cancer and TB. A friend of mine had a bike accident. He had a bone sticking out of his, out of his skin. Went in the ambulance to the doctor. The doctor took an x-ray, came back, looked at the x-ray. He said, they've x-rayed the wrong leg because there's no break here. Sent him back to x-ray the other leg. Came back. No break. The doctor said, what's going on? He looked at his leg. No break. And the doctor said, that's impossible because I've got a bit of your bone here in this dish. (laughs) Another friend of mine had a tumor in her brain the size of a golf ball. The surgeon went in to remove it. Her family prayed for her. He went in and he went, something wrong here, there's no tumor. And she's got the x-rays and the MRIs to show it. Tumor, no tumor. It wasn't a misdiagnosis. My own wife, when she was a child, had some kind of, they think it was some form of leukemia, but they didn't quite know which one. They tried everything. She didn't respond to treatment. One night, the doctors called her parents in and they said, go say goodbye. She's not going to make it through the night. And they started to fill in the details on her death certificate. At that very moment, a family friend, hundreds of kilometers away, didn't know what was happening, woke up in the middle of the night and said, I've got to pray for Chantel. Didn't know why. Began to just pray and intercede. Turned around. And my wife is here today because of the prayers of a faithful saint. Do we believe or do we really believe that these things are real? Do we believe that the, the for some or do we want to see these things birthed in us, not for our glory, but for the glory of God. I want to raise the dead. I want to pull people out of wheelchairs, not so I can have an international ministry. I don't want an international ministry. I quite like living here, thank you very much. But I do want to see Jesus glorified around the world. I want to see Jesus glorified in Cape Town, in Stellenbosch, in my family. And it's not going to happen by us being respectable, faithful, professional Christians. It's going to happen when we're radical enough to believe what Jesus said. I will send my Holy Spirit and greater things than I've done will you do. And it starts with desire. Eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, Paul tells us. And I'm hoping that as I'm speaking, already there's a desire being stirred for more. Not respectable Christianity. Outrageous, crazy, inexplainable, wild, supernatural lifestyles that come out of intimacy with a supernatural, all-powerful God. If God is alive today, and he is, then he should be manifesting through us. You have a relationship with him. I want to ask you, what is your desire tonight? Do you desire that anointing? Do you desire a deposit of the gifts of the Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Maybe some of you have had it once and grew out of it. And you've been cruising along in comfort mode. 
Maybe some of you are living in the past. You're a when we. You know a when we, right? A when we is somebody who starts every, every sentence with, you know, when we did this. I remember when we, I rem- we're not called to live in the past. You know, one, of the, one, of, one scriptural principle is the glory of the latter should be greater than the glory of the former. We should be seeing more and more of these things, not less and less. Some people teach that all of these things died out in the apostolic age. And I've got to say, what a lot of rubbish. Because God didn't suddenly stop being a supernatural God. Is there a desire? Are you willing? But are you willing to pay the price? You know, sometimes when God has something for us, it reminds me of the little girl with the plastic pearls. And her dad says, give me your plastic pearls. No, daddy, they're my pearls. And if only she knew that he's got real pearls for her. But she can't let go of the plastic pearls. And some of us have to let go of things in order to receive the genuine thing. Maybe we have to let go of our fears, our insecurities, our respectability, our theology a little bit in order for the Lord to come with something genuine. And what I love, and I'm going to finish on this before we pray, it says this, that when Samuel anointed David, the Holy Spirit rushed upon him in power. He rushed up. There's an eagerness, as much as there should be an eagerness from us, there is a desperate eagerness on behalf of the Lord for the Holy Spirit to rush upon us in power and to, be, to flood through us that we might be used by him. If that's your desire tonight, I'd love you to stand because I'd love to pray for you. And I want to ask, perhaps one of the most important points I made tonight, you must be born again. Some of you may be religious, some of you may be churchgoers, some of you grew up in Christian families, maybe some of you have even been part of Joshua, whatever, but you've never, ever made that choice to die to self and allow Jesus to make you brand new. You've always just thought it's been improving yourself. And I want to say tonight, that free gift of a new life is available. And that's the most important thing. And if tonight you need to do that, I just want to pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the gift of new birth. That when you found us, you didn't say, here's a mess, I'll try and fix it. But you you gave us new life in you. And I thank you that when we give up the life that we have, living for ourselves with our priorities, our pleasures, when we decide to give that up and hand it to you, you give us a life so much better. I pray that every single person in this room would know what it is to be born again and have new life in you. And I pray, Lord, that as a congregation, there will be a sense of growing intimacy with Jesus in individuals, in families, in community groups, in in the congregation. That even even as we're talking about gifts and anointings, that we don't want to be known as the miracle-working church or the prophesying church. Lord, let us be known as people who love you and love people. Let, first and foremost, your love be evident in us, amongst us, and through us. But Lord, we do need the supernatural. We do need the gifts. We do need that anointing to come and for the Holy Spirit to come and rush upon us in power to embolden us, to to give us courage, to give us insight. And we want to be reliant on you for what we do, not on our own skills, knowledge, or abilities. We want to see demons scream in terror and, and flee. We want to see the lame walk. We want to see the blind see. We want to see cancers and and other diseases just disappear. 
We want to see a fearlessness in, in our witness of the gospel. We want to see your voice spoken prophetically and clearly through your people. So just come now in this moment as people present themselves in that moment of intimacy. As they present themselves naked and unashamed before you. Come Holy Spirit. And deposit those seeds. Deposit those gifts. Change lives. Change communities. And be glorified through our lives. Because that's what it's all about, Jesus. And our desire is to lift up your name. Amen.